Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Book TV's Afterwards. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post the podcast every Sunday, subscribe, and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. He'll discuss his book, Front Row at the Trump Show. He's interviewed by former White House Press Secretary for Bill Clinton, Mike McCurry. Jonathan, it's great to talk to you uh, today about this wonderful book that you've written. And I want to start with you by the beginning and the end of the book, because you have two different encounters with Donald Trump. And the first is when you're a young cub reporter at the New York Post, and the last is when, obviously, you're, you know, a big White House hotshot reporter. But describe those two different encounters with Trump, because I think that's kind of the arc of the book, and it goes between those two. It's it, it really incredible bookends, Mike. Uh, the first was, uh, I was, uh, you know, in my... 20s, was working for the New York Post. Uh, I was actually assigned to City Hall. Um, there was a guy there that was mayor, by the way, at that time. He had just become mayor. His name is Rudy Giuliani. Um, and, <laughs> of, of whom we know. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, and there was this absolutely unbelievable uh, story that had gripped New York City at that particular moment. It was not a story that I was particularly interested in, but I was working for the New York Post and it was all that my editors cared about. It was news had just broken that Michael Jackson, the, the, the king of pop, had just married Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis Presley's daughter. Uh, they, they had married in secret. Uh, they had not been seen in public yet. And they were staying at Trump Tower. <laughs> so, uh, so when this news broke out, everybody convened, all the paparazzi, all the, you know, the, anybody all the curiosity seekers. This is New York City. This is... And it's, you know, it, and it's the New York Post. And it's is... the New York Post. And by the <laughs> way, Michael Jackson is at his absolute peak of popularity at, at, at this moment. And, uh, you know, so uh, it, it, the crowd around Trump Tower became so intense, they actually put a police cordon uh, around the, uh, the block and people had to get across the street uh, because it was, just, it, it was just too many people trying to get in there, try to get a, trying to get a glimpse... Of, of of the newlyweds, um, so but I not not Donald Trump. No, 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 not <laughs> Donald Trump. This is this is Michael Jackson and Elvis Presley's daughter, for God's sake, right? But but they are staying at Trump Tower. So um, I'm at City Hall, and nobody cares what's going on at City Hall at this particular moment, particularly not at the New York Post. 
So um, on a whim, I said, how can I get a piece of this story? So I, um, I called up uh, this number for the Trump organization, and I, I, it was just the general number. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know Donald Trump. I didn't have any connection to Donald Trump whatsoever. I was a young reporter. I'd only been at the Post for like seven or eight months. I, you know, I was a new reporter in town. And, uh, and I called the number and I said, can I talk to Donald Trump? And uh, they, I was connected to, uh, to Norma Federer, who was his gatekeeper at the time, his longtime press secretary, practically a member of the Trump family. Uh, she had the desk right outside of his office uh, there at Trump Tower on the 26th floor. And everything, everything went through Norma. I didn't know this at the time. It was just a voice on the end of the phone. So I said, I've got a story to pitch to Mr. Trump. And she said, what is it? I said, why would the most famous newlyweds in the world want to have their honeymoon at Trump Tower? And um, she passed it on. I got a call back almost immediately from Trump himself. And uh, I didn't know how he would respond, but he said, come on over. Can you come now? <laughs> so, um, so I'm at the New York Post's office, which were down, you, you know, Manhattan. It would, they, at that point, they were down yeah, they're South down low, Street. Yeah, yeah, they're down Lower Manhattan. Lower Manhattan, South Street, uh, you know, the other side of Chinatown. And I, um, I, I tell my editor I've got this, and they're like, okay, great. Here, they, 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 they send me with a photographer. His name was Francis Becker. We, uh, we hustled our way up to Midtown, got to the... You know, the, the, the police cordon were immediately let through, went in through. Uh, Trump was there, was brought up to his office. And um, there's a photo in the book, um, which is a little embarrassing. Um, <laughs> you, look, you look like the kid that you were at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, you know, I remember uh, at, at the time, because, you know, he comes in, he's like, let me show you. Let me show you around. Let me show you why, you know, why they're here. Um, the story, by the way, and I think we also have a picture of the of the front page uh, the article that ended up written was about the the the, uh, the, the secret uh, honeymoon hideaway uh, for for Michael and, and Lisa Marie. It was really it was massive coverage in the paper. I had like five pages uh, inside, and you know we my, we went around. We met Michael's bodyguards. He showed me the secret tunnels they got in and out of. Uh, of Trump Tower on to avoid all the people outside. I, they showed me you know, their, their secret getaway car, which I, probably wasn't a great thing. And he was showing me, telling me where everybody lived in Trump Tower, all the other famous people. You know, yeah, you had Spielberg. Yeah, and Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, the, uh, the British royal family, uh, Sophia Loren, pointed me out where they all were. We actually ran inside... Uh, a, a drawing of Trump Tower with arrows pointing to the to the apartments owned by these various people who probably were trying to be discreet. Um, uh, but uh, it was something else. But uh, at one point in the middle of the tour, Trump says, do you want a picture? And I was like, well, I mean, I've got my photographer. Don't you see that we're taking pictures all? I didn't know what he was talking about. But then it became obvious he meant, do I want to take a picture with him? Mm. Which... You know, as a journalist, you don't usually stop in the middle of an interview and say, "Hey, can we get a can we get a you know a shot together?" Do a selfie, with yeah. each other. Yeah. So, uh, so the picture was snapped, and you see it uh, in the book. I, I actually had this picture. I, I, I put it in a, in a frame back when I was living in New York twenty five years ago, um, and then when I moved to D.C. A, a, a few years later. You know, it, it, it was in a, I threw it in a box with a bunch of old photos. And it was only after Trump became president that I was like, I wonder if I still have that picture. And I, <laughs> I broke it out. And it's, it's like, it's an amazing moment because um, he looks, captured in, uh, in this picture, because he looks exactly the same. I mean, he's a little bit 
He's a little bit heavier now. He's a little thinner back then. But he's wearing the same type of suit, the long red tie that's a little, little longer than anybody else would wear it. Uh, the hair is essentially the same. Uh, he's got this expression that I've seen in a thousand pictures uh, that he has taken now from behind the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. Um, and it was like, but, but I, I, I was thinking as I was writing this book, right when I was almost done, I got summoned into the Oval Office to, to meet with the president. Yeah, that's the, and that's the end that's, of the book. That's the bookend. And, and it was, um, I was president of the White House Correspondents Association. He had uh, some complaints specifically about a story I had done and also about uh, a, a story that had, been, that had run in the, uh, in the uh, Washington Post over Labor Day weekend, by the way. Um, uh, I don't know how many other people you know, maybe even noticed the story or noticed my story, but he was keenly aware of both of them and, uh, and had some, some things he wanted to, to raise with us. So we were brought into the Oval Office, and it's, I described the scene. It's one of the, one of the odder moments uh, in a time when there have been many odd moments, Mike. Um, but I was, you, you know, you spent a lot of time there as, you know, as, as, as White House Press Secretary. I was brought in by the Press Secretary um, um, and the Chief of Staff. This was uh, Stephanie Grisham and, and Mick Mulvaney. Um, and, and, I, and I brought with me uh, two of my colleagues on the White House Correspondents Association board, uh, Zeke Miller and Steve Portnoy. We were brought in through the outer oval. Uh, the oval office was empty. Uh, we were asked to sit at, at, uh, at, at the three seats, three chairs that were out in front of the desk. And then we were told, wait. And then Mulvaney and, uh, and Stephanie Grisham left us in the Oval Office. Now, I don't know how many times you, you worked there. I don't know how many times you were in the Oval Office alone. Um, but I've never been in the Oval Office alone. The doors were closed. It was just the three of us. And I can't tell you exactly how long it was. I think it was about two or three minutes. But it felt like an hour. Yeah. And, you know, Zeke Miller with, is with AP, leaned over to me, and he's like, you know, we're like, what, we're, what, are, what are we're, we doing? We're, we're, we're definitely being taped, right? I mean, we're definitely being watched. Uh, so we just like sat there in silence. And then the president came back in and we had this, this meeting that lasted about, you know, I mean, it, it lasted uh, upwards of an hour. And I, at one point, sat there thinking that here I am sitting across the Resolute desk from the president of the United States, who is Donald Trump, um, and... 25 years ago, almost to the day, 25 years earlier, I had been with him in Trump Tower, running around, you know, trying to find, you know, Michael Jackson's bodyguards and, uh, you, know, you know, doing this kind of gossipy tour of, of, of celebrity uh, apartments uh, in, in, his, uh, in his building. And, you know, who could have imagined that, I would end up where I was and that he would end up where he was. You know, here I was like a really junior tabloid reporter in New York City. He was this flamboyant developer who liked to get his name in in the tabloids. Um, And then 25 years, almost to the day later, I am the president of the White House Correspondents Association sitting across the Resolute Desk from that former flamboyant developer, Donald Trump. Uh, as president of the United States. And, and it was really, and, and like you said, the whole story kind of, the incredible story of how we went from that moment 
to that final moment uh, is, is really what Front Row at the Trump Show is about. Well, isn't there something kind of a, there's a seductive quality that he has that kind of rings through all of this, which is he at the one time is declaring you to be an enemy of the people, and I want you to talk a little bit about that, but at the same time, he is looking for approval and engagement and, you know, wanting to to be involved and to, you know, have you know, some kind of relationship with the people that he's dealing with in the media. It's a, it's a fascinating juxtaposition, I think, of, of the role that he plays. And I, I think that you see that play out, and you write about that in the book a lot. But, but you know, what's that like? Because he's, he's, you know, he's got this simultaneous quality of wanting to declare the press to be fake news and enemy of the people, and yet at the same time looking for your personal approval and wanting to engage you and to be, you know, kind of pals with you. It's, it's, it's a weird, weird thing. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is fascinating because I've had the incredible privilege of being a reporter who has covered a White House for four different presidents. I mean, I was only in there a bit. When, when you were there, I was a junior CNN reporter. I was occasionally sent uh, to fill in. Um, but uh, but I remember being there, you know, with you during the the, the, the chaos of of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, Don't and, remind me. Yes, yes, <laughs> and you know, and and George W. Bush, and then you know Barack Obama, and and now now this. Every one of those presidents complained about press coverage. Every one of those presidents thought that the press focused on uh, it was was way too negative. Didn't see the great accomplishments of of of, of the administration. That's standard operating procedure. But, you know, I mean, Trump's attacks go far beyond any of that. I mean, literally, it's not just, so you have enemy of the people, which is a, a phrase, which I actually, I, I spent a little bit of time in the book about yeah. the, the origins of that phrase. It's a very ugly phrase that's been used by, uh, you know, uh, used by Stalin, used by Hitler, used, uh, you know, during the uh, the French Revolution to justify the beheadings of, of, of of people um, uh, by, you know, guillotine. Um, talk, but, but, John, but, t- talk a little bit more about that. That's like one of the most interesting parts of the book is unpacking that phrase. And you, yeah. you, you do that at some length in a couple of chapters and really, you know, go, go through what a noxious phrase that is if you look back at the history of it. But uh, talk about that a little bit. I, I, I spent some time looking through uh, the, the origins of the phrase, and it was used quite prominently uh, during the French Revolution. That's really, yeah. that's really the most significant place. Uh, People got beheaded as pe- a result. And, 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 and the, uh, you know, and... and and basically the, 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 the justification was, I mean, the, the people that were targeted by the law under which uh, they were found guilty and beheaded, the, the, the actual law uses that phrase, enemy of the people. And I go through and I document, I document the use of it during, during the reign of terror um, when, when blood was flowing in the streets of Paris. Um, and, and then uh, the other place, that, the next place I, I, I saw it was with... Uh, uh, in, in Germany, um, the, the plebiscite that was uh, that, that gave Hitler his powers. Um, the, you know, I go back and I find this this article that that, that was an Associated Press article right on the front page of the New York Times and many other newspapers around the world. Uh, and right there in the uh, you know in the lead paragraph, uh, you, you see 
the, the National Socialist Party making the case that anybody who votes against this is an enemy of the people. Um, so you have the Nazis using the phrase, and then, and then you see it, you know, uh, a, a bit later used by, by Joseph Stalin. I mean, this is, now maybe, I'm not saying that Donald Trump knew that that was the, you know, what, what the, the history behind this phrase, but it was certainly pointed out by a lot of people um, that it had this really dark and morbid uh, and deadly history, and he kept using it. Um, so... Uh, you know, and, and, and the whole notion of it, 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 it creates the sense that, but, that the act of being a, an, an aggressive reporter of, you know, trying to hold those in power accountable, that you are essentially a traitor to your country. Um, I mean, I would argue it's, it's, it's the exact opposite. This is, a, this is an essential part about what, to use a phrase, what makes America great. But, but, I, but Mike, the, the, the flip side that you allude to is that this is a president who consumes more news than any of those presidents. Um, yeah. he, uh, he knows the reporters. He reads the stories. He watches the news coverage. He, you know, he, he once uh, privately called, you know, said TiVo was the greatest, TiVo, early DVR, was the greatest invention in mankind because he has all of the shows on his DVR and he watches and he and he sees how he's being portrayed and you know i i recall him um at one point phil rucker with the washington post who's a you know really good reporter um at that press conference the president made reference to a story that phil had had written during the before the new york primary okay in uh, in 2016 about the staten island ferry and about you know phil basically went and, uh, and interviewed people on the Staten Island Ferry and found there were a lot of people who really liked Donald Trump. And he wrote this story uh, about it. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't even see the story. You know, Trump not only saw the story and read it, this, is, this has now been a couple years earlier, and he, he becomes president, he goes through all that he's been through, and he sees Phil Rucker, uh, not exactly a household name, by the way. I'm a great reporter, we all know him, but... And, and he's like, yeah, that story you wrote about the Staten Island Ferry, that was a wonderful story. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. He knows the reporters. He knows, he knows the reporters. I mean, he knows, I've, I've known him for a long time, but he, he knows, you know, most people in that room by name, uh, knows what they've done. Um, many of them have probably gotten phone calls from him, either to complain about something that was written or to, or to offer something up. I mean, you know, Barack Obama and, and people, you know, particularly on the right, people say that the, there was, you know, the media was infatuated with, uh, with, with, with Obama. First of all, the Obama White House complained bitterly about, about the White House press Oh, it, you know, it, every president, going back to yes. George Washington, has yes. complained about press coverage. So there's nothing new about any of that. No, nothing new. But, but, you know, Obama would come into that, into that briefing room and do, and do a press conference, and I swear he didn't know more than a hint. I mean, he didn't, he had no idea who was in the room. Uh, I mean, I remember at one point he's like, you know, he gets the list of questions uh, from his press, you know, of who to call on from his press secretary, which some presidents do, some don't. But, but that, that was the practice with, with Obama. You know, the press secretary would say, this, here, here's who you should call on. And I remember him at one point looking down on his list and he reads the name of the AP reporter and then he looks up like, okay, where is... I mean, of course the AP reporter is sitting right there in front. That's the AP seat. Right, right. And you'd think that he would know the AP reporter, but, you know, no, no idea, no idea. Uh, George W. Bush, you know, he did know, uh, 
didn't know the personalities, didn't know the people. He even knew, you know, the the uh, the camera operators. Some of them, if they had been with him on the campaign, um, but um, but Donald Trump, he he consumes he consumes the news. He's fascinated by it. He relishes it. He has talked about. He's marveled many times, some publicly, some not, about how many times he dominates the front page of the New York Times, a paper he likes to attack. But he's so proud of the fact that he is on. You know, when he is on the front page of the Times, um, really, even if it's negative, uh, you know, he's there, he's being covered. So it's it's a fascinating dichotomy. Well, it's a it's a weird love hate relationship yep. in some ways. But let me let me ask you a question because, as you mentioned, you're you know prominently involved in the White House Correspondents Association and have a leadership position there. But but why hasn't you know the press corps more aggressively? challenge this war that he's declared on you. You know, he's declared you to be the enemy of the people. Why haven't you fought back more aggressively? Well, um, first of all, I, I, I think that, that there has been uh, fighting back on that. I know when, when he first used the phrase, um, I, I went on, I was, I was anchoring our Sunday show this week with George Stephanopoulos that, that, that Sunday, and I did, I, I, I did a thing at the end of the program where I, you know, Pointed out the history of, of, of the phrase and um, and and pushed back, you know, aggressively. But I have to say that doing that's not easy because, you know, it, it's not the role that you're. I mean, no, no journalist feels like they want to be making the news. They want to report the news, and then that, that I think that's part of the dilemma, right? It it, it really is. My, I mean, we are not the resistance. <laughs> you know, we are not the opposition party. That's what. That's what that was the phrase. I also talk about Steve Bannon was the first to use. Say the media is the opposition party, and then Trump grabbed onto that. We can't act like the opposition party. I mean, we do have to push back, and I do push back on this. There was a, you know, especially in my roles representing the uh, the, the White House press corps, when the stuff gets dangerous, when it is over the top, it needs to be called out. I mean, there was an incident where there was a there was an event for uh, for a Trump uh, a pro Trump organization. At one of the president's properties uh, in, in in Florida, and they actually they they had an exhibit where they played this video clip. Uh, it was a, it was a doctored scene from a movie that showed somebody in a church firing using you know killing uh, news people um, and and Democrats, uh, and it was horrific. And you know we had. I mean, you gotta you gotta call this stuff out. It's 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 actually dangerous. I mean, we saw with the guy who um, sent the pipe bombs. You know, the um, poorly made, fortunately, to to CNN. There will be people, and I and I've and I've asked. I've, I've said this to the president directly, and I recount that in, in the end of the book. Is is that there are sick people who will take these words literally and to heart, and and hurt people. Um, it's dangerous, and, 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 it's, and it's particularly irresponsible coming from the person with the biggest bully pulpit of all, coming from the president. Have you raised that with the White House staff, with the press secretary, with other people? Uh, yes, but one thing that you have to recognize with this White House is, uh, and, I, and this is another theme of the book, is uh, Donald Trump does seek out advice. Uh, he does listen to people. But ultimately, he goes in his own direction. Um, sometimes, he, sometimes he takes the advice, sometimes he doesn't. Um, 
but he truly is, I, I, you know, he is his own chief of staff. Uh, you know, various, you know, some of the, you know, John Kelly tried to kind of change that uh, for a while, had some moderate success, <coughs> but he is his own chief of staff. He is his own national security advisor. Uh, we saw that with John Bolton, you know, John Bolton's national security advisor and the president's going off in a, you know, diametrically opposed on, on, on several major hot button issues. Uh, he's certainly his own communications director and his own press secretary. Yeah, talk a little bit about that and about, you know, the press briefing. That's a subject that I obviously care about, having done many of them myself. But, you know, he's he's now turned the press briefing room into his platform for delivering a daily message since he's not out doing rallies and things like that. But... Uh, why do we need to have a daily press briefing, and what you know? What's the role of the press secretary, and that, you know, w- what do you need as you're covering the White House? Well, we we went we went uh, all that time, you know, a year without having any you know any any briefings by a press secretary. We had uh, you know occasionally. Like Mike Mick Mulvane, he came in and did a briefing famously. Um, we, uh, in, I think in, we in, just I think we just went uh, we just passed. A one-year anniversary of no yeah. press briefing by the press secretary, which yeah. I find astonishing. But it, we it is, it. it is, and, 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 and you you make a point which I I, I think is a is a is a is a, is a valid one um, and an important one, which is uh, which which I want to get to. But but my my argument about the need for a press secretary having regular press briefings. Now we're in an extraordinary moment right now where the president. You know, um, is 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 doing his own briefings every day, and I mean that's a whole different scene. We're in an extraordinary time, this crisis. But I think it is important uh, during any time to see the person who is speaking on behalf of the executive branch of the United States government, who is speaking on behalf of the president, come out and take questions every day from all comers. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's important. First of all, in terms of our news gathering, even though admittedly, you know, the information is not always all that useful under any press secretary, um, some more useful than others. Um, but, uh, but I think it's important symbolically. It, it sends a message to the country. It sends a message to the, rule, to the world that the most powerful person uh, in our government is accountable. Um, it's kind of, you know... In a way, it's we, we don't have question period like the British Prime Minister has in, in Parliament, um, but this is somebody speaking on behalf of, of the executive branch who who has to sit there and take questions, which some of them are quite uncomfortable uh, from a unruly group of reporters. But you make an, an, another point, which is the process of preparing for that briefing um, helps uh, clarify policy making and leads to better policy. And I, I think that's an interesting point too. Well, yeah. And you know, my, my point is that the preparation to do that briefing every day requires you to go around the government and talk to cabinet officials, talk to the president and other senior officials in the white house to get real clear information because you know, you're going to get the questions and the process of getting the, the right answer 
sometimes leads to better policies. So like sometimes I would go to President Clinton and would say, okay, here's the answer that I'm supposed to give today. And he would say, well, that's just hooey. <laughs> and, you'd, and you'd say, well, yeah, but that's your policy. And so he'd pick up the phone and call someone and say, well, look, we need to get, you know, we, we got to get this right. You know, what are we doing on this issue? So it would actually improve the functioning of government. And so I, you know, that, the, the, the reality of doing that briefing is much more than just taking care of the press and feeding the press what it needs every day. It also has a reverberating effect throughout all of government because people have to come up with better answers. And if you come up with better answers, that usually means you're going to get better policy. Uh, you know, and so, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very strong advocate of doing that. But, uh, but, but the other question... Uh, you know, sometimes it turns into performance art or theater of the absurd, we might say. And I, I wonder whether the the whole uh, public encounter and what's on TV and, you know, sitting in the front row and ask, asking the questions, knowing that it's going to be on live TV, does that make it less useful? Is that, uh, is that an impediment to trying to get the right information in front of the public? I mean, what, 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 we should, we, we should, what should we do about that? It's not, not easy to ask a television a personality <laughs> that question, but, but what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think that, and, and I think you and I have, uh, have actually disagreed on this point. I know you've, you've talked in the past about uh, suggesting that briefings might be more useful if they were not televised. Um, I, I think that, um, sure, there is an element, and, and, and I've probably been accused of it uh, more than once, uh, and I've certainly looked askance at some of my colleagues and said, like, come on, are you really, you know? I mean, we're trying to do a serious thing here, and you're, like, playing to the cameras. That, de- that definitely happens, and it is definitely annoying uh, when, when it does. Uh, but, I, again, I think that there is, there is symbolic value in the world seeing this play out in the world seeing that this is the way our system works. Uh, Nobody is above the law. Nobody is above uh, scrutiny, public scrutiny. Um, And I also keep in mind, Mike, there's, you know... There's 49 seats in that briefing room. It's a very small room, as you know. And now, um, and now being spaced accordingly. I mean, now there are 14 people sitting at any point. We, we, we've had to, we've had to re- reduce it and say people can't stand in the aisles anymore and, you know, for, for the obvious public health reasons. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people uh, who watch those briefings in, in, in real time, including reporters who can't be there, including, you know... Um, you know, people people watching C-SPAN. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. C-SPAN might 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 also uh, <laughs> agree with me on this. I, I, I think I think it's important that they're televised. That is not to say that there isn't a really important role for background briefings and briefings that are not on camera. But I think that uh, having the press secretary go out um, and the world seeing the press secretary go out on a regular on a regular basis is a, is a valuable exercise. You know, C-SPAN was uh, a great relief to nursing mothers. I used to have people say, oh, gosh, I was up in the middle of the night watching your briefing on TV when I was nursing my baby. <laughs> so that, that, that's what we were, we're, we were reduced to that. But God loves C-SPAN for Absolutely. caring. You know, at one point before we began to televise the briefings at the White House, that was the only way in which you could 
uh, see briefings. And so it, it, I first was at the State Department, and my briefings at the State Department were on uh, C-SPAN late at night sometimes. And I used to have people come up to me and say, oh, yeah, I was watching you at 2 in the morning. So, <laughs> But and, and you know, but by the way, the, 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 we've we've talked a lot about the uh, the disappearance of the of the White House briefings, but but a tendency we've seen over over a big chunk of the Trump uh, era so far is, you know, there were there were you know long periods of time would go by without a State Department briefing, right? Um, and I think right. those are really important. I'm a former State Department uh, reporter. I wasn't there when you were uh, the spokesperson for the State Department, but those are really substantive. Uh, briefings they're televised by the way as you as you make reference uh, but they're 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 really important it's a whole different set of questions um, and uh, you know the idea of those going away and 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 they've they've begun to come back but the the Pentagon I was a Pentagon reporter for some time I think those right, right. you know we they, they were a long period of time went uh, without a Pentagon briefing that that is that is not healthy I, I I told President Clinton one time I said you know there are like three really great public spokesman jobs in Washington. White House press secretary, State Department spokesman, Pentagon spokesman. Yep. And you gave me two of the the, the jobs. Yeah. But I have to say that the best one was being State Department spokesman. And he was really curious about this. So well, why do you say that? He said, well, because the it's much more substantive. There, you know, you don't get a lot of political questions. You don't get, you know, a lot of this, you know, sort of stuff that happens sometimes at the White House. You get really informed questions, and and as you know, at the State Department, they will stay on a subject and go through it and peel the onion back layer by layer, and then they'll say someone will say next subject, and then you move on to the next subject, and that that kind of substance is just not. The way in which you know the the political theater at the White House, if you're in the front row at the White House, uh, is not the same as what you get there. And 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 to not have those kinds of detailed, substantive briefings at places like the Pentagon, the State Department, and even the White House is really, you know, we lose something uh, as a result of that. And I, you know, I, I I just I wish there was more of an outcry about. That yeah. from you know members of the press and people who really you know know that that's an important part of our democracy. We we you know and, and I, I mean I remember I, I I loved covering the State Department um, for that very reason you know really substantive uh, beat uh, and and those briefings uh, I remember with uh, with uh, with Boucher as the, uh, as the as the spokesperson and uh, Matt Lee with AP and Arshad Mohammed with with, with Reuters right. and. And it's just really a really smart group of reporters, and I would go in there, and I always learned, you know, I mean, I learned about the world. Uh, and sometimes you could see, like, with with, with Matt Lee and 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 Stephen Boucher going back and forth, it was like, who knows more? I'm not sure, you're, you know. <laughs> you're re- like, you're referencing a guy named Richard. Boucher, Richard Boucher. I'm sorry, Richard was, Boucher. Yes, it, yes. it was was actually my tutor. He actually taught me how to do. State Department briefings and Brilliant guy. was just a really wonderful guy and yeah. and I remember uh, when he we we made him an ambassador so he became an ambassador I think I think he went to Cyprus and then had and then went to Hong Kong he was the consul general in Hong Kong after he had served because uh, I, I remember going at one point and kind of arguing when we, we were making diplomatic assignments at the White House I said you got to take care of this guy 
because he is like one of the very best of the best, and he's a career public servant. He's what you know Donald Trump might refer to as the deep state. But that is, those are the quality people that we've got that are doing these kind of career jobs in government. And, you know, to have them be disparaged or to be denigrated is, I think, a real, real loss. And I, I hope there's more of a, you know, a resistance to that in, you know, both the press and, you know, in people who just kind of care about and speak out for, you know, the role that government does play in our lives and it needs to play it. But. I'm on my hobby horse. Yeah, now. no, I I I, I agree. <laughs> um, t- talk a little bit about, you know, you've 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 got some uh, interesting stories there about your relationships with Sean uh, Spicer and others. But uh, you know, how how do you view the role of the press secretary? You've talked a little bit about how important it is to have someone come out and be accountable, but. You know, you write a little bit in the book about some of the personal relationships that you've had and maybe share some of that from the book. Yeah, so, I, I mean, Spicer's an interesting one because um, Sean is somebody who I had known for a long, long time. Um, uh, considered him a, a friend. Uh, he was somebody, you know, I knew him when he was obviously a spokesperson for the RNC, but I also knew him when he was a press secretary on Capitol Hill. I remember at one point uh, he was involved in a, in a group of, of Capitol Hill press secretaries, invited me as a young CNN reporter to come and talk to them. Um, I actually shaved Sean's head on national television once. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you told yeah. me you write about that in the book. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was him and, uh, and Brad Woodhouse, who was the spokesperson for the Democratic National Committee, and they, they had made a bet, you know, be, be, you know around one of the, uh, the elections, and... And uh, and I shaved their heads. It was for St. Baldrick's. It was it was a great thing. And and Sean asked me to do that. Sean was the one who reached out to me to do that. So when it was announced that he had become the um, the press secretary during the transition, that he would be the press secretary uh, uh, in the White House, I called him within about ninety seconds of the news breaking just to congratulate him and say, you know, uh, as as somebody who's covered the place for a long time and has worked with a lot of press secretaries. Uh, if, if, if he needs any help in terms of how, you know, advice on how to deal with the press corps, you know, uh, I'm happy to talk anytime. And almost immediately when they got into the White House, um, I, I, I thought that Sean kind of became a totally different person. Uh, or maybe I just didn't know him as well as I thought I knew him. Uh, it was obviously it's one of the it, it's it, it's the second most difficult job in Washington right now. I think the first is still chief of staff for Donald Trump, but they're both, I mean, you know, you can go either way. And um, it was uh, pure hostility almost from the start. You know, he... Um, yeah, was, that, was that Sean or was that him reflecting what his boss, the President of the United States, was demanding of the staff? I mean, I, I, I think that it's, I think that it was both, but I think it's a big part Sean, because I will tell you, and a lot of people are surprised when I say this, uh, that Sarah Sanders, when she came in, it was an entirely different situation. Now, Sarah tangled with the press when she had press briefings. Um, she was a, you know, in some ways every bit as controversial uh, as, as Sean, but Sarah Sanders worked very hard uh, to, to perform some of those functions of a traditional press secretary and to have a constructive relationship with the White House press corps. I found her generally... Uh, actually, very pleasant uh, to, to deal with on the 
on those logistics and, you know, kind of the, the, the matters that you have to deal with on, especially through the White House Correspondents Association. We, you know, when there's foreign trips, there's extensive, you know, give and take over what, what access there will be, where the press will be. Um, she was responsive. She was, you know, she, she acted much more like a, like a traditional press secretary. And, and I, I found a, a very, very constructive relationship with Sarah Sanders. Um, Sean, it was like pure hostility, all, uh, all, all, really from day one. He famously had that one press conference. It uh, wasn't a, actually, the, the, the was not a press one. conference. It was a, I don't know what it was. When he came into the briefing room, um, uh, the, the uh, you know right after the uh, the, 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 night, the night after the inauguration, and right. yelled at everybody for uh, about crowd size, and I um, I reached out to him immediately after. You can imagine, I mean, I, you know, my, my colleague Mary Bruce was there for ABC. I was actually in in New York. Uh, it was a Saturday night, as I recall, and um, so I was not in the room, but I was obviously watching it, and. There were, there were two things that horrified me about that performance. One is that he said at least three things that I could document that were verifiably false. Uh, and the second thing, which was as offensive to me, and I think you may appreciate this, is he left the room without taking a single question. Mm. Now, that is, that is a room, to me it's somewhat of a sacred room, the, the press briefing room. It is a room for give and take with journalists. A press secretary... And tell me if, if I'm wrong. You, you know this better than I do. But I, I've never witnessed a press secretary come in, speak from the podium, and not take a single question. Yeah. That, have you ever seen that? No. That, that would not happen. I, I have one great story about uh, who was then in the ABC White House correspondent, Britt Hume. And I had done a lot of briefings and, you know, had taken over my role in the 1990s at, at the White House. And he came up to me one time, came up to my office, he said, you know, you're the most political person we've ever had at that podium. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you really like, you know, you, you, you know, we usually just get information and facts and content, but you really are doing a lot more of the political spin stuff. And that had a huge, huge impact on me. And, uh, you know, I toned it down after that. But you, you, what you're describing is kind of this relationship that, that exists. That it's a, you know, you're you're, you know, you're there to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, as uh, Peter Finley Dunn once said. But uh, you, the the symbiotic relationship between the press corps and uh, the people at the White House is is really a, a important functioning part of our democracy. And uh, I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate or understand or know about that, but you're speaking to what kind of more the personal elements of this are. And I'm, I'm surprised about that relationship that you had with Sean. Uh, what about the, the current press secretary is Stephanie? Stephanie Grisham, yeah. Grisham. Do you have any kind of relationship? I mean, I think Stephanie Grisham's in a very tough uh, circumstance. I mean, it's, this is, like I said, either the first or second hardest job on any given day uh, in, right. in Washington. And You never see her. I mean, she doesn't do briefings. And so, and I, I think I, I mean, if I ran into her on the street, I wouldn't recognize her, I don't think, because she's just not a public personality the way some of the press secretaries have been. Yeah. 
And and it's you know I mean she's she's on paper the most powerful press secretary we've ever had because she is she has three roles she has three titles she is the spokesperson for the first lady still that was what she did before she became press secretary she's press secretary and she's communications director um, but it's you know by, it, by by the way that that cannot work I right. mean because they are two different jobs I mean I've always talked about this a lot the communications director at the White House, the director of communications, is, is like what I, I like to use the business analogy. It's product development. You're actually thinking about what's going to be on the, on the menu. What, you know, what are we going to do a week from now or you know, down the road? So you are, you know, that, that's one job. The press secretary is, is what I would say is retail sales. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're out there to right. sell, sell the job every day. And they're just two incredibly different and complicated jobs, and I just don't know how you could do both of them. And then she also has, I guess, the, the additional responsibility of being the first lady's spokesman. So, you know, I, I kind of, in some ways, pity her, but I also don't think that's a functional way to organize the way in which you do presidential communications. And then add to the top of it, uh, she comes at a time when the president himself has clearly decided that regular briefings by his press secretary are no longer useful and he doesn't want them. Right, right. So Because he's going to do, you know, because I am the, the man. Yeah. You know, so, I'll, I'll go do the briefing myself. So I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the, uh, for the position she is in. I, I will say this about, um, about Stephanie Grisham. This during this particular moment, which has been a just just a really difficult one to be um, to be covering the story, to be at the White House. It's difficult for the whole country, obviously, but but with the uh, coronavirus crisis, um, she has I, I I think dealt very constructively in trying to work with me and work with the White House Correspondents Association to make sure that we can continue to cover the story and do it safely. Um, and, and, and to take the necessary steps. And it's not easy. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really difficult... Because we, we want to be there. We want to be covering the story. Now, could you imagine this? You know, uh, it was... We're just like two weeks ago. If you go back in time two weeks ago, you know, you, you still had basically all the press uh, at, 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 you know, working at the White House. You had, you know, you had briefings. You know, at any given briefing, there could be 100 people packed into that room. There's 49 seats. But, I mean, with this the Trump... Era, you know, anytime there's anything there, it's like, it's it's more crowded than you can possibly imagine. And imagine if at that point you had had somebody come down uh, or multiple people testing positive, you could have literally shut down the entire White House press corps, yeah. uh, being forced into quarantine, and then you know our ability to cover the story is completely over. And plus, you have a lot of sick people. Um, so, so you know, I've I've worked very closely, actually, uh, with with her and her office to try to say what can we do, you know, to you know we we will voluntarily as a press corps reduce our numbers, um, you know, d- do it in a way that's responsible, still allows enough people to be there and do the job, but doesn't you know doesn't endanger somebody. And we've had the temperature checks, we've had. You know, the GSA is coming in and doing uh, regular cleanings uh, <coughs> rather aggressively. You know, uh, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough situation, and she's handled it well. But, I mean, overall, how do you do that job? How do you do those three jobs? I, by, by the way, I mean, the other thing is there's always tension, as you know, between the East and West Wing, between the First Lady's office and, 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 and the President's political uh, team. Tell me about it. <laughs> Especially maybe on occasion in the Clinton White House. <laughs> um, so, I mean... 
I mean, even just doing those two jobs, it's hard to imagine. And uh, and then you throw in the the communic- I mean, it's it's and then not being able to really speak publicly. So, um, but you know, Sean, uh, the, the thing is, after that after that first performance, um, he came back on on the Monday and held a press conference. And this time, first of all, he had a suit that fit a little better. You know, we know the president didn't like the suit he was wearing when he came on Saturday. That the podium, they had managed, they had realized they could lower the podium a little bit, which made him look a little bit taller. I mean, you know, a few things. And um, and he he came out. He, and when he called on me, I asked him a question, which, by the way, I'd asked Josh Ernest almost exactly the same question uh, when he became press secretary. And I, but it, but with Sean, there was a real need to ask the question. Basically, you know. In light of what happened on Saturday, can you just you know clarify the nature of your job? Is it your intention uh, to always tell the truth from that podium, uh, or to, to, the, to the the truth as, as far as you know it? Um, and he gave me a good answer. He said yes, it's a serious job, et cetera, et cetera. But for some reason, he took offense to that. He thought that I was questioning his integrity. How dare I ask no. him if he would tell the truth? Right, right. And, you write about that in the book too. Yeah, that yeah. Encounter. And and it and it set off a whole series of events. And there's a there's a whole series of things about Sean. It was really quite a uh, you know quite a uh, quite a time. And uh, and I still had to obviously regularly deal with him because he was the press secretary. But the interactions were often uh, uh, hostile, and he was always yeah. had his back up and. You know, I mean, it was it was it was a uh, there 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 are some pretty dramatic scenes <laughs> described in the book about that I, relationship. I had the same. I tell you a little story. I had the same encounter once with Helen Thomas, who was the venerable UPI White House correspondent yeah. there for years and years. And she once asked me, "Is it ever appropriate for the press secretary to to lie?" Or do you always have to tell the truth? And I said, yes, you always have to tell the truth, but sometimes you have to tell the truth slowly. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> and I got, I got in huge trouble for saying that. But, you know, I was thinking, like, all right, if you know that there's going to be an attack, uh, you know, on, in fact, it was literally that was the, the question. We, we were going to have an attack on Osama bin Laden, and you knew that was going to happen, and you couldn't tell the press, oh, yeah, by the way, you, you all need to kind of hang around here today because we're going to go to war later today. But you couldn't say that. But you had to kind of, like, figure out ways in which you you could sort of stumble around and and keep people aimed at the truth, even if you were not going to be able to kind of be completely forthcoming with what you actually knew. It's a, it's a real challenge sometimes to be in that position of knowing things that you can't really say, but you, on the other hand, you can't lie. Yep. And it, you know, so it's, it's, it, it, it is very, very difficult. Jonathan, I want to get back to the book. Uh, walk us through the book a little bit. You have some fascinating chapters. You talk about some of the things that you were able to cover and that you were a part of at the, at the White House. But I want, want to give you a chance to kind of like unpack a little bit of what's in this great book. Well, the, the first thing is what I try, my, 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 Goal in writing this book, more than anything, I, you know, obviously you want to get, you want to have reporting that nobody else has had. You want to provide more insights into the inner workings of the uh, of the administration. You want to get some, capture some of that drama. But more than anything, more than any of that, more than the scoops, more than any of it, what I wanted to do is I wanted to convey a sense of what it has been like uh, yeah. to be part of this, to be a reporter during this extraordinary time. 
uh, to be covering Donald Trump, uh, to be on, you know, starting with the wave of the campaign and all that that uh, encompassed and into this White House, what it is, because the experience has been, I mean, I think that, that, you know, I'll be sitting around telling these stories, uh, you know, hopefully if I, if I live that long, you know, deep into my 80s, we'll be on some beach somewhere. And, oh, my God, you're not going to believe, you know, um, what happened here. These are, these are just, this has been an incredible experience. It has been exhausting. It has been at times exhilarating because of the public interest in all things uh, related to this White House has been higher than just about anything else I, 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 have, I have covered. And that includes people that despise the president as well as people who love the president. People are fascinated by what has happened. They're interested. They're paying attention. Uh, some may be getting a little exhausted by now, but, but, but during the, the arc of this story, I mean, it has been, the spotlight has been uh, uh, incredibly bright on, on that White House. So I wanted to kind of portray a little bit of, of what that is like day to day and the chaos and the, um, uh, to, to also to be covering a president, trying to cover him fairly and objectively, even as he is personally insulting you and your profession. Um, how do you do that? How, do you, how does that all play out? So as I wrote the book, I, I, I thought it was going to be, uh, when I started, you know, mostly kind of like I would start with day one in the White House. And what I realized is there was so much that you needed to understand about Trump before, you, before January 20th, 2017. You need, so a third of the book is actually before the inauguration. Right, right. And some of my some of my some of the stuff I, I I I love about I loved about writing it was diving back into that period of time. Um, so, for instance, I happened to be in the Oval Office uh, the the two days after the election in 2016 when Donald Trump for the very first time met personally Barack Obama. I mean, they had been they had had this drama that had played out, you know, since uh, you know for 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 the previous. Uh, five or six years, all the whole birther stuff and all of that. I mean, they had, they had you know, they, they, they had been two, the, the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011 when the President Obama taunted him, all of that, but they had never actually met. Um, so I, uh, you know, you know how it works, and I explain in the book. I also try to, I try to give people a sense of how it works inside the White House, the stuff you and I take for granted um, but, but most people don't, you know, they're not inside. How, how does it work? Where do the reporters go? Who is where? How do you get to where you're going to be? How do you cover this? But as you know, in the Oval Office, it's always a pool of reporters and news organizations take turns. It's a very small group of reporters because it's a small space. And it happened to be my turn to be in the Oval Office for that historic moment. And uh, I, there's a photograph that, that I, I actually took a lot of photos of that moment yeah, on the, my phone. The, by the way, the photos in the book, and you credit Doug Mills, among others, who, who have, they are fabulous. That is like one of the, the great parts of the book. That was really fun, putting together the, 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 the photo section and, and, and writing the captions. To the, it's almost like a separate book, is that, is that photo right. insert. But... Um, you know, I had my phone, and, and you, know, you know how it works uh, when there's a, they call, we call it a pool spray, when, when, when the press is brought into the Oval Office, 
uh, to take pictures, uh, to hear the statements, the public statements of whoever the president is meeting with, and then to be ushered out while we ask questions on the way out. You, you know how that works. But we, before going into the Oval Office, you, um, you, you, the, the, the press, the press pool assembles in the Rose, by the Rose Garden in the colonnade right outside the door to the Oval Office. To go in, we're usually brought in about a minute or two before we're actually, the door opens and we quickly go in and then we quickly leave. Well, I went out with the press pool uh, on this day, two days after the election in 2016 in the Obama White House, and um, we waited to go in, and we were out there for, you know, about an, an hour waiting to go in to see uh, the, uh, the, the, the president and the president-elect, which never happens. But it was just the two of them in that Oval Office. And by the way, someday, someday there will be like a great play that is written about that, that, that period of time. That well, about meeting. that moment. I mean, yeah, you know. Those two men alone right. in the Oval Office after the election that shocked the nation, shocked the world. And we are outside because nobody expected it was supposed to be a quick meeting like about 20 minutes so we go out you know in minute 19 and then the thing is still going on uh and on and on and on and we're waiting we're waiting we're waiting we're waiting and at one point i look out and i see jared kushner and dennis mcdonough uh the 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 chief of staff and 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 and, and the uh and the incoming um you know son-in-law and staff uh and and they're outside, and they come to look in. They see the meeting still going on, and they take a walk around that track that, that, uh, uh, that, that, that's at the, in the White House South Lawn. And they come back again after, you know, it takes a while. What's that? A, is that how long? How, how, is that a quarter? How, how long is that track? Uh, about a quarter of about, a mile. About a quarter of a mile. Right. Yeah. So they, after that, they come still going on, and they take another loop. And then, and then I look over across the Rose Garden, and I see... The people that I had met and I described, I, and I love going back and, 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 and seeing this, the very early days of that campaign when there was really nobody working for the Trump campaign. It was just a handful of people, including his former caddy, uh, former uh, Ralph Lauren model, model and, and, and spokesperson for uh, Ivanka's product line. Um, you know, uh, I mean, just a very small, small group of people, a former intern or, 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 or junior person at Fox News that came in. Um, and... And, and, and I look over and I see Dan Scavino, um, who is the, you know, again, the former caddy who became the manager of his Twitter and Instagram accounts. Hope Hicks, uh, the spokesperson, original spokesperson. Um, now back in live action. Yes. Um, and, and, and a couple of the others, originals, and they're all, and, and they're across the, the, uh, the Rose Garden, and then they're walking up the colonnade and they pause and they take selfies, you know, like almost like a tourist would, because I don't think any of them had ever stepped foot in the White House before, on uh, any capacity. So here they are, coming in. Basically, they're about to take the place over, and they're kind of like everybody's in awe. Nobody can really believe what happened, including the president elect Donald Trump. <laughs> So what I did is I went back and I, I described that scene. And by the way, so I was t- talking about my, my phone. So I, I actually shot a video, which I couldn't put a video in the book, but maybe we'll find a way to put that out. But I shot a video of that once we were finally called into the Oval Office, walking in. And it's really just wild to see. And I, and I end up sitting right up against the couch about a foot and a half from President Obama, about five feet from Donald Trump, 
for this moment. And then I took a, I took, I took a, a few still pictures, and I saw a side of Trump that I had never, ever seen before, and I never saw since. He, first of all, it was the first time he had ever been into a room where Donald Trump wasn't the one calling all the shots. Like, yeah, hey, come on, come in, and we're going to do this. Because was, this was Obama's meeting. Obama's the president. Right. So Obama's calling us in. Obama's doing the first remarks. Obama is, to, you know, handing it off to, to Trump to speak. Obama's the one. And, and, and Trump seems, to me, at that moment, humbled by the moment, maybe even a little freaked out by the moment. He had just spent, you know, an hour or so with, uh, with the president of the United States describing some of the, of the real challenges he was going to be facing. Um, he's sitting in the Oval Office, and, it, and I think it, it, it is dawning on him Yes, he won the election. It was great. He loved the campaign. But now this is going to be his. Well, he has the responsibility. We, we will someday learn exactly the contents of that. There, there's been some description of that, uh, among other things. You know, Obama apparently said that North Korea is the thing yep. that you're going to have to pay the most attention to. And, and, Mike, by the way, I went back and talked to everybody that was there that day. I mean, I went back to talk to the, to the, to the senior people with, who you know, on the Obama team, to those who traveled with Trump. And I tried to reconstruct to the best uh, extent possible, to, to, to the greatest extent possible, what happened both in that meeting and also, you know, around uh, the, the White House on that day. Because it really is uh, a singular day in American history. So that kind of stuff, I, the, the, that's the first part of the book. The early days in the Trump campaign, you know, some of the stuff back in my New York Post days, um, you know, some of the key moments. I don't try to be comprehensive. Uh, every, cause you, you can't cover everything, but I try to cover the moments that I have something unique to say, where I, either through reporting that I have uncovered that hasn't been out there before, or something I personally experienced, where I have a unique perspective on moments that maybe you all saw play out. Everybody saw that moment play out, but I, bring, I try to bring something that is a perspective that... that, that, that for the most part, nobody else could have. You know, we're, we're almost at the end of the conversation here, uh, and it is a great, great read. You've really captured so much uh, after this. But as we kind of wrap up here, you know, what, what was the most surprising thing that you kind of thought about or wrote about as you did the book? I mean, what was the, the, the one thing that, you know, sort of said, I'm, I'm really surprised I'm saying this in this book? Um, well... One one moment is um, that, uh, that that I write about was uh, act, when Milk Mulvaney was made acting chief of staff. Uh, he called the um, uh, the uh, the senior West Wing staff out to Camp David to have a you know basically a group meeting over the weekend to kind of talk about how they would approach things. And uh, Mulvaney was in many ways very, very thoughtful about this. He, uh, he, he reached out to other former chiefs of staff. He had, uh, he had read a book about uh, the, the job of chief of staff, and he had uh, kind of learned some lessons from that. But what I found interesting, I found out that he actually um, had, uh, had recommended a book um, called A First Rate Madness, uh, a, a book that makes the case that, uh, that, that some of the greatest leaders in history have been mentally ill. Um, and that some of the worst leaders uh, in times of crisis have been people that were eminently sane. <laughs> um, so I thought this was really unusual. I mean, 
Uh, we could we could ask why he would recommend <laughs> such a book. Um, uh, but uh, I, I actually reached out to the author of the book. The book was written in 2011, so it was before or 2012, somewhere in there. So it was before you know Trump came on the scene. So he's obviously not not part of it. But it you know makes the case that uh, you know. Uh, Neville Chamberlain was a was a perfectly sane and, and and stable guy and completely unable to deal with the insanity of of the rise of Nazi Germany. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill came in, who who in this this author uh, believes had had a mild mental illness, and he was Winston Churchill. That uh, uh, um, McClellan, the uh, you know General McClellan, yeah. was a upstanding great ar- you know army officer, perfectly sane. Uh, and completely unable to deal. Uh, <laughs> and U.S. Uh, Grant was an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, and, and 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 Sherman was was out of his mind, and uh, you know. So anyway, I, so that was a that was an interesting little. Uh, that, well, uh, little that detail. on that very cheerful <laughs> note, we end our book chat. But uh, it it is a great, great book, and you you provided so many good personal insights. Uh, but I, I hope you get a lot of. Uh, opportunity to talk about the book and share some of your experiences and talk about some of the things that you've seen in the book. It, it really is terrific. Thank you, Mike. And, and I just want to say just one last thing, which is uh, it's great to, to have this conversation with you because the one thing that virtually everybody agrees at when it come, agrees about when it comes to talking about uh, the job of the White House press secretary is the model for the job, uh, the guy who, 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 who is, is the absolute model for how to do it right is Mike McCurry. So, well, that, thank I, you. Th- thank you for that. My models were Marlon Fitzwater and Jody Powell. So it, the tradition goes back uh, quite a ways. But thank you for saying that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.